Hey guys, you're listening to episode 90 of the Finish Line podcast, where we discuss the intersection of faith, generosity, and personal finance. My name is Cody, and I'm here with my co-host and brother, Keelan. Today, we're talking to Michelle Kenmanier, CEO of SIL International. Michelle was born in Cameroon, where the Bible made a strong impact at a young age. From that foundation, Michelle went to work for SIL International, eventually transitioning into his current leadership role. Today, SIL works in over 1,300 language communities across 98 countries around the world, reaching over 897 million people with God's Word. Stay tuned to hear all he had to share. Before we get started, I wanted to mention the Finish Line Sprint Program. The Sprint Program is designed for small groups or individuals to take their generosity to the next level, and it provides all the tools you need to set your own financial finish line. You can find all the Sprint modules on our website at finishlinepledge.com slash Sprint. Now let's get to the interview. All right, we have Michelle Kenmanier joining us this morning all the way from southern France. Michelle, thank you so much for taking some time to chat with us today. Well, thank you, Cody and Kaylan. It's really a joy for me to connect in this way. So do you mind getting us started just telling us a little bit about your upbringing and your faith background? Yes, it can be quite a story uh, from, I mean, given my cultural background, I was born in Western Cameroon in a rural area where my parents lived and they had not had any access to Western education. And it turned out that they they didn't have any access to the Christian faith. And as such, I didn't go, grow up as even as a churchgoer. And church was, for me, a distant reality. And what we knew in our village context was like, just like a Catholic church and a Protestant church. But I just knew, okay, while some people gathered there on the Sundays to do certain things, but that was not really something for me. And following the way of my parents who followed the ways of their ancestors, they practiced traditional religion, African traditional religion, which consists essentially of trusting that the ancestors or those who died before are the mediators between the living and God. And therefore, we always had to kind of offer sacrifices or do whatever to please those ancestors so that they would intercede in our favor before God. And it was quite an, I mean, a way of life that did not bring any sense of hope or or true conviction about what we did because there was no certainty of are the ancestors happy? Are the ancestors unhappy? How do I know that I'm forgiven? How do I know that I'm protected? And all of that. So we we had to practice the religion, but there was no assurance that we were safe. And so that was our reality. And I grew up in that environment. And uh, when I finished my high school, like the 10th grade in the USA, when I finished my 10th grade, I moved to the nearby city for the remainder of my high school. And I was away from my parents. And after my high school, I went to the university and I was further away in the capital city. And it was during my first year that I came in contact with the InterVarsity uh, Christian Fellowship on our campus in Cameroon. And I was impressed by the difference that I could see in the life of those who call themselves believers. So in the end, when they invited me to a meeting where I was exposed to the gospel, their testimony had already impacted me. And when I went to into that meeting, we read the story, I mean, the, the parable of the prodigal son. And as God would do it, that story, I got the clear conviction that I was just that prodigal son and I needed to come to Christ. And that's how I gave my life to Christ. That was back in 1985, in my first year of uh, university as a student. And that's how things changed for me. And I was the first ever believer in my family. And that was the start of my journey with the Christian faith. Well, that is quite a start. And um, I'd love to hear 
where God took you from there after kind of meeting you in this way. Where did he yeah. call you? How did that change your direction? And, uh, and eventually, how did that get you all the way into Bible translation where you are today? Yeah. Obviously, when you come from that background, you don't grow up with any understanding of missions and so on to, to expect that you would be serving God in full-time mission. So when I became a believer, I studied hard and I really desired to bring the gospel to my family. And I also, I mean, I was praying to be able to make it academically, find a good job, provide for the family, witnessing and all of that. And in the course of my studies, I studied literature and linguistics. And studying linguistics, I came across one of the SIL missionaries who was in Cameroon and who had a PhD in linguistics, and he came to, to teach a course in our university. And I observed that guy, and I started to feel like, how would somebody so bright leave the USA, come and live in a village in Africa, learn the language in this place, and be conversant with that language, just as I was conversant in my mother tongue as he was teaching linguistics. And I started to, to research on what is his motivation. And I realized that his motivation was not just to maybe be excited about languages, but it was actually to translate God's word into the, the, the language. And I felt like, wow, this is a huge commitment. But I appreciated the commitment of this guy, but I just felt like that is not for me. And I thought it was not for me, actually. <laughs> and my goal was to finish a PhD in linguistics, start a university career, and, I mean, do well in that regard while witnessing to students or whatsoever. And I eventually did a PhD, and I had an opportunity to teach in the university and so on. But it was around that same time that God started to speak very clearly to me that I had to join him in full-time ministry in Bible translation. I wrestled with that for over two to three years, and I realized it was God's calling on my life. And then I got married, and my wife also struggled with, what does that mean to serve God in, in, in Bible translation? What is even Bible translation? And we said, okay, we won't fight to go and do Bible translation. Let's pray to see if God would confirm. And in the weeks that followed, we attended a meeting where we were learning to be young parents because we were expecting our first child. The speaker went off topic. Rather than talking of parenting, he started talking about the need for people without scriptures, the need for linguists to, to reduce the languages in writing the need for people to teach how to read and write so that people can read the scriptures in their own languages and so on. And my wife sat there, listened to this guy talk. And after the talk, she came back home and said to me, why did that guy go off topic and say all the things he said? <laughs> and I said, well, I would never know. And he said, that was the Holy Spirit speaking to us. I said, well, what do you mean? And she said, let's take a step of faith and join the Bible translation work. And that's how we just said, okay, I will write my resignation from my job. I was then teaching. I will write my resignation and then we will, we will join. We will, we will join the Bible translation work in Cameroon. We joined with the small weekly organization in Cameroon, which was quite a tiny organization back then. And that was how we got into Bible translation. Michelle, can you tell us a little bit about the background of SIL, how it was founded, and the kind of work that it's involved in? And then I'd love to hear what you were doing when you first got involved with SIL. Yeah. Actually, the, the story of SIL is one that really moved me personally as a person who grew up speaking a minority language. Actually, I spoke my mother tongue, which is called Gomala. That's the only language I spoke until I was age six and went to school and was exposed to French, which I did not understand at all. 
So when I heard the story of SIL, it really spoke deeply to me because our founder, Cameron Townsend, went to Guatemala during the First World War to, to sell the Bibles in Spanish. And as he sold the Bibles, it was his assumption coming from the U.S. that anybody in Latin America could grab a Bible in Spanish and just read it. But as he sold the scriptures, somebody actually challenged him one day and said, do you know that those scriptures make no sense to us? And that guy who, who was named Francisco Diaz, who was a native speaker of a language called Cacchiquel in Guatemala, he said to, to Townsend that there are three oppressors that keep the Indians down. He said, the first one is the witch doctors who teach superstition and tell the people all kinds of things that keep them into idolatry and spiritual bondage. And he said, the second oppressor is the priest. That is the instituted religion of the Catholic Church. He said the, that the priest would never come to the indigenous people. And even when they come, they use Spanish, a language that we don't understand. And he went on to say the third oppressor is the higher tier of the society. That is the Latinos who simply take advantage of the fact that the indigenous people do not have the same education and understanding and they simply keep them in some kind of slavery. And he went on to say to Townsend, my people have little hope. And he said, would you become our missionary? Townsend was really moved by that story. And later on, he left the Central American mission with which he went to Guatemala to decide to start the translation of the Bible into Cacchiquel. And really in those days, linguistics was not that well developed. There was no role model anywhere. We don't know how he went about it. But actually, in 10 years, he was able to translate the New Testament into Cacchiquel. Actually, I'm not at home. I have the copy of Townsend's New Testament in Cacchiquel. I think that's the greatest gift I was ever given in my life by the Townsend family. And so that New Testament was finished, completed in 1929. And Townsend went back to the U.S. and started to say, what if I found other young people like me to go out to the other people groups that are still without scriptures like the Kachikel and do the same things that I did? So he came to the U.S., started to mobilize, talk to people. And in 1934, he was able to find two young people who were willing to come and be taught by him during something that he called the Summer Institute of Linguistics. And that was actually in a garage that somebody gave Townsend in Arkansas. And he taught those guys during the summer. And after the summer, he said, okay, would you go out? Would you go to Mexico? And that was 1935. Would you go to Mexico to bring the gospel and to translate the gospel? And these guys, these first two went to Mexico. And the following year, he continued to recruit and train. And he got not two, but he got five the second year. And among those five were two people who became real prominent giants in the field of Bible translation. One was Eugene Nida, who became the father of American Bible Society, and the one who brought, who developed the theory of Bible translation as we know it today. And the other one was Ken Pike, who became the father of modern linguistics, developing, helping to understand how to develop indigenous and minority languages and so on into writing. And that is how God really brought those people early on in order to pave the way for what we do today. So SIL, is, it's a long story of how it began, but really at the heart of that story is the concern for the people who use the lesser known or the minority languages of this world. And it is the clear commitment to use their languages in order to leverage their access to God's word and to give them 
opportunities to thrive within the societies in which they live. That is how SIL started, and that is what SIL continues to pursue today, till today. So what does the strategy for SIL look like? Obviously, I know you guys are working with more than five or six people at this point, especially considering the many different cultural contexts that you guys work in. What does that process look like now? Yeah, actually, yes, you said we work with more than five or six people. Actually, SIL is 4,300 key staff working all around the world in all continents of the world, in the Pacific, Asia, Africa, Latin America, all around the world. SIL is present and is actively engaged. Actually, SIL is currently involved in 1,300 plus projects, language and translation projects around the world. And yeah, and the majority of those uh, projects are fit within what we would call within Illuminations, the All Access Goals projects. So that is what SIL looks like today. And what is the strategy? SIL goes out really to pursue this goal of saying that people can flourish by getting to know God, getting to understand their identity as a people created by God. And that is why we go in with kind of a holistic approach whereby we help the people and we work the people to value their language, for their language to become the platform through which they can really feel like not a second-class citizens in this world, but they can clearly feel like, yes, we are valid and people with worth because God knows us and God values our language. So we develop the languages. When they are oral, we aim to reduce them into writing. And we have expertise to do that kind of thing. And we translate the scriptures into the languages because we believe that Christ being known by the people is the key factor that is needed to really change their perspective and give them a new perspective in life. And because most of these communities uh, do not have the infrastructure in order to learn how to read and write their languages, literacy and education is also a key component of what SIL does because literacy thereby equips people to be able to read and write the scriptures or whatever literature may be produced in their languages. So that is the strategy that we use today in order to go about our ministry. But actually, as I described this strategy, it may look like being focused on SIL, but actually at the heart of this strategy is one, is advocacy. We are always advocating for the need of the people who use or speak minority languages to have access to God's word. We are also building capacity that is training and equipping the native speakers themselves to be able to do the work on their own. So that is, that is what is at the heart of SIL strategy. Michelle, I'm curious, you said that Cameron Townsend spent 10 years translating the New Testament into a new language. What does it look like today if you are targeting a language that uh, has no scripture currently written in their language and may not have any believers? What would be the process of bringing it to them? Yes, it's it's surprising that these days the process probably has become more elaborate and the care and the, the need to see that scriptures are indeed well rendered into the target languages. Maybe the process that has become more elaborate tends to even take more time than back then. But what I would say is that there has been uh, an intentional focus of all organizations involved within E10 to say, what do we do for what, how can we make scriptures available to people sooner than later? And that is why we've been talking very much about the acceleration of Bible translation. But talking about acceleration, I would still say, yes, it still takes about a minimum of 
five to six years or even more, still even 10 years in some cases for us to be able to complete the New Testament in some languages, depending on the realities on the ground. And you mentioned instances where there may not be a known believer within a language group. How do we go about that? Of course, that will require that somebody gets to learn that language in the first place. That is, somebody who does not have that language as their mother tongue would have to learn that language. And it could be somebody who, I mean, a cross-cultural missionary, maybe from the U.S. or from Europe or from another country of the world. Or it could also be maybe another believer within the same geographic region who does not have that language as their mother tongue, but they would have to learn the language. So where there is no known believer, it would take a longer time because it would require other people learning the language to be able to make sense of how to translate and so on and so forth. So that's that's what I would say in, in that case. But whatever whatever happens, all of our agencies have been developing, working towards a process that is quite robust to see that there are mechanisms to ensure that the translation at the time it is given to the peoples is actually God's word that can speak to them as naturally, uh, as clearly as any person having God's word into their own language. And that is, that is the commitment of all of our agencies these days. So since the 1930s, I'm sure there has been a lot of refining, a lot of best practices, lessons learned, things like that. I think for somebody not intimately involved in the Bible translation movement, when you say translate scriptures, you know, they, they probably just picture, okay, just sequentially start in, you know, Matthew or Genesis and then take one verse at a time and, and just translate it. But I'm sure that it is more complicated than that and that there is probably some strategy maybe to the the order that you translate, maybe to the sequence of events in terms of who's reviewing that, who's actually doing the translating, you know, verse by verse, and what that process looks like. So maybe you can give us some more kind of context for the, the technical aspect of a new translation. Yes. And we, we all know that the Bible, as we have it, was not written with the, say, the Western audience or the African audience or the Pacific audience in mind in the first place. And therefore, to translate the Bible, the first step is not even to just open the Bible and say we're going to translate. The first step is to be able to understand, to seek to understand what is the context of the scriptures and what is the context of the people for whom translation needs to happen. And when you look at those two contexts, of course, there will be some similarities because we are all in God's creation, but there will be some differences. And those things need to be clearly borne in mind by, by the people. For example, in a Western audience, just the reality of climate, you have the weather, you have the summer and all of that. But in other contexts, you don't have those realities. So how do you take that context, then take the linguistic context, scriptures as they exist in the original forms in Hebrew or or in Greek for the New Testament. But then when you turn to a language in the Pacific or in Africa, what is the structure of of Hebrew? How does Hebrew say things? How does Hebrew uh, order words? How does Hebrew express things? What kind of images does Hebrew use? And then you need to have some idea of what is the word order in this target language? How does this language make meaning? And so on. This is where linguistics and language plays in into Bible translation. You have to work out some of these things in the background. And these are, these are among some of the best practices that have been developed over the years. And when that is done, you do need to train people in translation principles because there are principles to translate. You don't just grab something and say, okay, I'm going to take this into that. There are principles that help you to know how to render meaning. 
how to what do you do with uh, implicit information what do you do with unknown words or unknown realities how do you render that so there are core principles for example if jesus is called the lamb of god and you get into a community where they don't know the lamb at all but maybe if the only animal they know well best is the the pork would you just say okay because this is the animal they know will say that jesus is a pork of god <laughs> I think then now you have to also think about what does the Bible say about the pork and so on. And you may realize that the other images may not, if you translate that Jesus is the pork of God, that may not render what would enable this specific community to be part of the global faith that we all share together. So even though they may not know the Lamb of God, you may w want to find a way to say Jesus is... Uh, I mean, you may describe it like close to an animal which is close to the lamb as we know it and find a way to render it in such a way that it can still help the community to be able to communicate their faith with the rest of the Christian community. That's just uh, about translation principles. And you do all of that through the phase of drafting the scriptures. And when it is drafted, you don't just say, okay, because we've said it this way, it's just God's word. No, you still take it out to review it. You take it to, if the church is, exists, is there a community of believers already, you have to test it with the believers for them to read and say, does it make sense to us? And then the feedback from those believers can help to further refine the draft. But you don't just test it with the believers because often believers may just have, I mean, a way of their own to understand because they are already saved. You also test it with non-believers. But you don't test it with non-believers to know the accuracy of the scriptures. We have to test it to see how you are rendering God's word is natural to them. Whether they hear it and really feel like, oh, yes, this is our language. It is compelling. It speaks exactly the way we would say things. And then you take all of that feedback and then bring it in order to further refine. Then you also bring in a translation consultant, as we call it. It is somebody with some translation experience, with some understanding of linguistics and some understanding of translation principles and biblical languages, who can then look at the translation and interact with the translators to just review how they went about it and make recommendations as to what could be further yeah, improved and so on. So as you hear about all of this, this is what often gets a translation process to take time because you, when you want to give God's word in a way that truly speaks to people, it may require investing to really ensure that it is truly God's word. That is why in the Illuminations Alliance, we always talk of better quality, faster and cheaper. Better quality first, because we want to ensure that what we give out as God's word is truly God's word. Yeah. Well, Michelle, as I've learned about Bible translation, I can't help but imagine what it's like when you get to actually give a people group scripture in their language for the first time. And I can speak for Keelan and myself. We, we know the transformative power of scripture, but we've always had access to it since the moment we were born. Can you share a little bit about what it's like, the transformative effect that receiving scripture in your home language can actually have on a group? Yes. Yes. Over the years, we have seen it over and over. Generally, getting scriptures into one's language Beyond just the fact that it could be, a, it may be a book that has become available or an audio device which is made available through maybe an oral form of the Bible, really beyond the fact that people receive God's word, it's, it's, it always comes with a clearer sense or a clearer conviction or a clearer understanding that God is truly with us. And we have seen that over and over because when people hear God's word in the language that really uh, speaks to their deepest emotions, 
they can truly feel like, yes, God is not a distant God. It is not a God for the English. It is not a God for the French, but he is also God for me. And that is one thing that I have observed over the years. Another reality that I've observed with people receiving God's word in their own language is the fact that scriptures help the people to find a new sense of dignity when they receive the God's word in their own language. Because as long as you have a language you call your own, but each time you have to relate to God, you have to go to a foreign or to a different language, it always causes you to feel like, Am I really worth, am I, do I have equal value with other people who use other languages in which we can worship God? So we have seen the translation of the Bible being the platform for leveraging the dignity of people for them to really feel like, yes, we are valued people by God. And actually one of the moving, if I would just give one, I could actually give two stories there. One of the stories that really touched me was in 2012 in Ghana, at the dedication of the Bible in one of the languages of Ghana, the chief of that community gave a speech and he just moved into tears and he said, we often as a people go to politicians and they don't recognize us. But now God knows us we can now be counted children of God. And in the way this man spoke, it was obvious to him that being known by God and being counted as God's children was like a new organizing principle which gives them a new kind of sense of conviction and a new launching platform for them as a community to look at life differently, knowing that God is our God and we are children of God. And that is that is just one example. Another one I would say, which is close to home to me, is uh, in my own language, For a number, when I told you that I was the first believer in my family, and I got to know to hear the gospel in French. But I grew up speaking my mother tongue. And when I heard the gospel and I believed, I realized very early that it was hard for me to share my faith intimately with my parents, with my siblings who did not use French. It was hard because my mother for a long time just said, well, you studied Western education, so you have been brainwashed and you have simply abandoned our cultural way when you talk of Christianity and abandoning ancestor worship and so on. She, she, she just thought that I was brainwashed because she didn't see Christianity as something being relevant to her because I was not expressing the faith in the categories of the, our language and the cultural categories that she could relate with. But when the New Testament became available in my language, there was a local evangelist who started to befriend my father. My father was already pretty old. That was around 2005, 2006. My father was pretty old. He spent most of his time at home. And this local evangelist would befriend. He would come, spend time with him, and share the gospel with him in the mother tongue. And I started to see how my father, who had worshipped ancestors and all of that during his whole life, the gospel started to penetrate him. And after a while, I came and I had a conversation with him about how his faith, whether he would turn to give his life to Christ. And he told me, I'm actually getting very close. I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, the local evangelist has been talking to me and I've understood many things that I never understood my whole life. I said, wow. I had come from the city. I went to meet the local evangelist and say, hey, tell me what you've been doing with my father. And he told me again, the, 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 all of the, I mean, the friendship and so on. I said, can we go together and just continue the conversation? 
And we went and continued the conversation with my father. And the local evangelist continued to share the gospel. And what I, I was really touched by was the way that the local evangelist could use our cultural categories and language in order to share the gospel to my father. He said something like this to my father. He said, you know what? God loves us so much. He is our creator. He created everything, and he loves us so much. But we have sinned against him. We don't do things that he likes. And he told my, he asked my father, can you claim that you are a righteous man, that you always do everything perfect? But, and my father said, of course. How can I say that? I'm, I know that I've missed so many things in my life. And then this evangelist said to my father, you know what? He said, we are enemies with God. And in our culture, when two parties are enemies, there is a, a ritual that ha they have to perform in order to reconcile. And he said, but in the case of God, we cannot perform our ritual because even our ritual falls short of his expectation. And he said, went on to say, but because God really loves us, he didn't want us to, to perish. That's why he provided his own ritual. That ritual in my language is called vanya. He said, God provided his own vanya for our reconciliation with him. And that vanya, it's God's own son that he gave and who died on the cross. And if you accept that he died on the cross so that you can be reconciled with him and made new in a new relationship with God, then reconciliation becomes possible. And he explained everything like that to my father, and he went on to say, would you accept God's vanya for you? He didn't say, would you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, as we would say. I saw my father think very deep. And he asked the evangelist the question, did you really say that God has only one son? The evangelist said, yes. Then he went, my father went on to say, well, that means if I re reject God's offer, God doesn't have another son to give unto my salvation. The evangelist said, you got it right. And then he said, well, how can I turn, turn God's offer? How can I turn God's vanya for my salvation? And that is how my father that day surrendered his life to Christ. And that was the start of, he was 82 or 83 years old at that time, and he was able to turn to Christ. And I tell you, to cut the long story short, in the months that followed, he went to church, and the next thing, that was 2006, he told me, I want to be baptized. And he invited the whole family, all of his children, and he went to church, got baptized, and he said, this is, I'm, I'm a new creature and all of that. So when I looked at that, and that was, by the way, I had become a believer almost 20 years before. But I tell you, the conversion of my father in that way really was the breakthrough of the Christian faith in my family. Today, more of my siblings have turned to Christ. I would not say it is, it's true. Many, everybody would know I was the first one, but I don't think it was my testimony Primarily, that made the, made the biggest difference. It was my father's uh, conversion and the impact of the gospel on, in the mother tongue on him that made the bigger difference for, the, for my family. And so, so to me, I really believe that when scriptures are made available in the languages of the people, it is really the starting point for that people group to, to have their own journey with God, to have their own story with God, as God interacts with them in, the, in, the, in, in, in their mother tongue with his word. Actually, what happened with my father, even the Bible agency, actually the Bible Society of Cameroon, which was the main agency behind the translation into our language, they don't even know the story of my father because God's word and, and the local evangelist all interacted in order to start that journey. And this is how the word of God in the languages, in the mother tongues, actually 
trigger processes that we would only really know the fullness of those stories when we are before the throne of God. Wow, what a powerful story and testament to the power of the scripture in general, but also the scripture in in someone's mother tongue. And, you know, hearing earlier, you talk about the care and thoughtfulness that is put into accurately trying to translate concepts that may not make sense for this or that cultural paradigm and trying to find a way to communicate something like the Lamb of God for a culture that has no sheep. I think the story that you just shared made that very real for me because, you know, you explained all of this background and context for the meaning of that conversation between that evangelist and your your father. And after explaining all of that context of the ritual and things like that, then listening to that story, I can understand the depth and the meaning of why that was so significant. But it takes all of that background and context for your father to hear that he had all of that context. All he needed to hear was, you know, will you accept that from God? And that instantly triggered so many layers of meaning for him. And that perfectly encompasses why it is so important to have scripture available, not just in a language that somebody understands, but in in their heart language because of that many layers of meaning that are captured in that. That's that's the main point, yeah. So I know that translation is a huge part of what you guys do, but as we know, there are many cultures without any written language whatsoever, and I'd love to hear how you guys approach a language or a people group like that. And, and I know that there's uh, a lot of audio translation, too, providing um, Bible for a culture that you know may have very low literacy, things like that. So how does the translation process and kind of developing a language look in that context? Yes, the best practices have continued to improve. And in order to keep a people from not hearing God's word for a long time, because we are working on the uh, writing systems and so on, we more and more encourage everyone to start with some audio translations, oral scriptures, which can help the people to have some early access to scriptures while language issues are being sorted out. And when a language is not written at all, when a language is spoken, but nothing is written into that language, it is the job of linguists to be able to, I mean, use processes, scientific processes that are known in order to discover the writing system, that is the alphabet and the grammatical rules that help, that can be used to write that language. And that is, that is what we generally do in most of the languages that do not have a writing system. I myself, for example, I, I worked on the writing system of a language in Cameroon that is called Bakoko. And this is a language which had not had any scriptures and any writing system for, I mean, forever. And when I came across that group, I was younger then and I, just felt like this, there was something really unusual among that group. I could see that the language groups nearby, which had been developed into writing and had the scriptures, the quality of life and just the, the church and the way people lived, the difference was very visible. It was like having a spot of light here and then a cloud of darkness just next door. And I, I could see the, the, the difference that it makes. And that, that's when I committed to, to work on that language myself as a linguist, to uh, gather the facts of the language, the words, the sentences, and so on, in order to create the writing system for that language. And by God's grace, that language now has already, the New Testament has been completed and just yesterday, I was asking, when is that coming back from the print shop in Korea? 
because I really would like to be part of the dedication of this New Testament sometime in 2024. It's pretty amazing the amount of layers that need to be considered in the work that you do and how God is just at the center of it. I imagine prayer is such a huge component of this work and it's incredibly significant, important work. It needs to be accurate. It needs to be contextual. And it's amazing that SIL is able to just create a process for that and do it over and over, but not mechanically, Mm. but because God's called this group of people that's grown to 4,300 people all over the world, all working together towards a mission. It's it's just a, a beautiful example of the body of Christ globally working and focusing in one area. Michelle, you mentioned the Illuminations Alliance. Can you share a little bit more about what that is? Yes, the Illuminations Alliance is um, actually what I would call uh, really the mover and shaker of Bible translation over the past 10 years or so. I would say for, for a long time, all of the agencies involved in Bible translation SIL, Bible Societies, Wycliffe, Lutheran Bible Translators, all of the agencies involved. We did stuff. We we did ministry. We had some ways of collaborating. We did certain things together. But we didn't reach the level of collaboration that God expected from us in order to be able to make the highest impact. And uh, the rise of illuminations, especially with some uh, people like you who are not professionals of Bible translation, but people who are kingdom-minded and desiring to bring their own skill and whatever God has given them to come alongside Bible translators. Those, those kingdom investors coming alongside Bible agencies to say, hey, how can we maximize collaboration? How can we reduce and remove the bottlenecks? How can we ensure that scripture reaches people sooner than later? I think illuminations as a grouping of those translation practitioners and kingdom-minded people who want to see God's kingdom grow. I think the gathering of illuminations has been what I would count as the as the biggest game changer in Bible translation over the past 10 years or so. Another topic has started to come up a lot more in the Bible translation world, which is the huge explosion of artificial intelligence, AI. And, and I know that it's still very much kind of a active topic of discussion, figuring out how that plays in. But I'd love to hear your thoughts on where you see the role of AI in Bible translation going forward and what kind of considerations need to be taken into account. Just recognizing how delicate and thoughtful of a process it is after you know everything that we've talked about already. Yeah, I think we, we are having this conversation now using technology and I still remember that 40, 50 years ago, translation happened with people writing everything with their hands and typing on typing machines and then, I mean, doing things in a certain way. So technology, from my view, has continued to impact the mission work positively and reducing the burdens and just uh, speeding up processes and so on. I would say, yes, technology has been a great help. And today, AI is bringing, I mean, a a new kind of revolution, which has even caught some people, I would not say by surprise, but has caused some people to be worried to say, what does AI really mean? Does, Does the rise of artificial intelligence mean that all of us as human beings involved in God's mission, we are hands off and then machines take over. I think this is the, this is the extreme that I believe we don't have to ever consider when we think of AI and Bible translation. And that, that extreme, we should never consider it because we always need to be reminded that Jesus entrusted his great commission to people, to human beings, 
and human beings who are endowed with the ability to think and the ability to create things and so on. And because the commission is entrusted to human beings, we always have to see that the translation process and the mission process in general remains one in which man, human beings, remain responsible for caring for what is going on. So that said, I would say there is much happening in the space of AI. And even for us in SIR, we have been exploring so many things that continue to uh, amaze us about what AI can do. We have experimented teaching the machine, taking the data in a place where we have translated the New Testament completely and using the language data and the Bible data to teach the machine. We have realized that if we start an Old Testament using artificial intelligence, the machine is able to generate a draft, which is not by any means accurate, but which can become a big help to the translators as they work on the Old Testament. And I would say, can, should we just despise that and say no, because it is the machine generating it. We just have to, to discard it. I say no, I think we have to be good stewards of what God gives us and still be able to consider that gift of artificial intelligence. But then, one of the things we are seriously considering is if AI can generate a good draft of the scriptures, how do we still care about the fact that Bible translation is not essentially about a product that is given to people, but it is actually a process that engages the people with God's word? If we delegate that process to AI entirely, how do we still allow God to achieve what he does when through the Bible translation process, he's able to engage people with his word for a number of years, thereby transforming them and equipping them for the ministry. So when AI steps in, one of the considerations for me is to say, yes, even as AI steps in, let's not consider Bible translation as just being about creating a product Let's still consider how do we still allow people to engage with probably with a draft created by AI, but intentionally take the time to make sure that the process that allows people to engage with God's word effectively happens through that translation process. That is one thing I would say we have to be cautious about. The second thing I would say is... We have to shun the, the fact that we just want to do it quick and just deliver something out there. Because I, I know we want scriptures to reach people sooner than later, but the way we go about it also matters. So if we simply would use AI to create maybe some scriptures and just dump them over a people group, I don't think that those scriptures are necessarily going to create the impact that they could have created. Because actually... In many instances, we have observed that it is through the translation process when translators who are native speakers themselves engage with God's word, they are transformed and the transformation happens in their own families, in the church and in their communities as people see the, the change happening the, even in their own lives. And we want to continue to say, if transformation happens through people's lives being impacted. How do we ensure that even with AI, we don't lose sight of that, that reality? Because otherwise, we may just have the world full with Bibles, but nobody being transformed. And I think that would be a tragedy. Michelle, you mentioned the all-access goals, and I imagine technology is going to really, in a lot of ways, make that possible. But for our listeners, could you just share what are the all-access goals and what do you see are some obstacles that might make that uh, a challenge to achieve? Yes. By all-access all goals, we mean in E10 something that we want to be very simple. We want to see that any people group that has less than 5,000 speakers 
that in those languages, we would ensure that there are at least 25 chapters of the scriptures that are made available. And for any group that is between 5,000 and 500,000 speakers, we would make sure that there is at least a New Testament that is available. And for all the languages above that number, we would want to see that there is at least a full Bible available. And for the top 100 languages of the world that generally serve as lingua franca or languages of wider communication, we want to see that there is at least two versions of the full Bible available. That is what we call the all-access goal. It doesn't mean that all the people everywhere would have access to the full concept, to the full counsel of God. But it, it is like an appetizer which would see that God's word is kind of sown in all the language groups of the world so that the smaller languages, at least with 25 chapters, may move to have a New Testament or a full Bible as necessary or those with a New Testament may move to have a full Bible and so on and so forth. So that's what we call the all-access goal. Now, what are some of the big challenges that we encounter in, in achieving this? This is what we've been working on in the context of illuminations as, a, as an alliance of agencies. One is to ensure that we truly as agencies work in collaboration and in complementarity rather than work in competition. Because all of our agencies are different and each of our agencies has unique strengths. And when we leverage our strengths to work together and to complement one another, we can be more effective. So collaboration is one of the things that we all need. And I believe that we this collaboration has advanced far more than ever in the Bible translation movement, thanks to the Illuminations movement. Another th reality that I would mention, over the years we always said, well, finances is the bigger problem that we would have. But as God has really triggered a new and extraordinary wave of generosity towards Bible translation, we have gradually been feeling like it may not actually be the money that would be the huge obstacle, the biggest obstacle or the biggest roadblock to the all-access goal. And we are realizing actually it may, we may need more people. We need more human resources. We need more people who are ready to step out and to serve and to work in this way. We also need more leaning on God. It, I mean, looking to him to work beyond our human efforts in order to accomplish what he alone can do. Because actually translation is not just about an academic or intellectual kind of work. Translation is actually about allowing God's light to shine into places where darkness has prevailed. And this is about a spiritual battle. This is about a, a warfare between, between the light and the darkness. And that is why prayer is another thing that is absolutely needed if we want to achieve the all-access goal. And I'm so, so encouraged that all of our agencies with resource partners, we have been meeting once in a month to pray together for the all-access goals. And each time we meet, one agency would lead the prayer and it just rotates like that through the whole year. And this is, again, a reminder that we believe that it will not just happen with our human efforts, but it will happen as God himself steps in. Yeah, and I'm, I'm excited to see as the momentum continues to build. I know there's been a lot of talk mm -hmm. about 2033 as a major goal for some of these all-access goals. Can you just provide a little context for the scope of how many languages there are and kind of how far globally across all the agencies, how much progress has been made, how much progress there is to go? Yes, I, I would not provide the numbers with the exact figures right, right now on top of my head, but I would say we all know that all around the world we have a bit more than 7,000 languages in various categories and so on. 
And right now we have close to 3,000 languages that may have some scriptures in one way or the other. And we also currently have a bit more than 2,500 translation projects that we can count as active all, all around the world. And this means that what we have been observing over the past year or so is that the number of languages that are still with no scriptures is really fast, de fast declining. As of the last count, we are counting about 1,700 languages with, I mean, no scripture is known or recorded to be known. And this is, this is really something significant because in, in the history of Bible translation, it has always been about a, a, a task of a magnitude that nobody could ever believe that it is one can scope it and be able to address it. But more and more, we are able to scope it. And there are many factors which uh, make it possible for us to think that even the 1,700 or so languages that are still out there, there are many factors like multilingualism. That is, the language vitality is not remaining the same as the world goes global and people use multiple languages. It may turn out as we continue to assess the vitality of some languages that some have shifted so much so that a translation may not be needed in those languages. And we also know the reality of languages that over time, languages may just weaken and die. And we also have that reality, which, which also happens. So as we continue to assess, while also actively engaging and starting translations wherever those are needed, we are very confident that within the coming 10 years, all the languages with no translation would have something in progress and majority would have at least the all-access goals reached. Well, Keelan and I have just gotten so captivated by hearing about the Bible translation work, and it makes us want to get involved and continue to track with the progress that's being made. For anyone who's listening to this and feeling that same way, how can they learn more about SIL and the work of Bible translation? Yes, of course, as in today's world, internet is the place to go and uh, the SIL website, SIL.org, is the place to go to have more information about SIL. But for people in, in, I mean, all around the world, through the website, but also through the people that you may encounter who are connected to SIL, you may have more detailed and more appropriate responses to the questions that you may have as you aim to involve. But whatever the case, standard ways of participating in this work, one is to say, Lord, how do you want me to be part of this? And I think the first step is to begin by praying, just imagining that there are people out there who do not have the privilege to just rise up in the morning and grab the Bible and read the scriptures and hear God speak to them. Just think about that reality and pray over it and pray that would no more be the reality of some people around this world. And pray for SIL, pray for the Bible agencies that are at work with the church around the world to, to eradicate Bible poverty. I would say this, the other thing to do would be to also ask, Lord, how would you want me personally to be involved in that? God may want you to be involved by just becoming yourself. I mean, devoting your, your life or your, your skills, like as he did for me, to be involved in this ministry in, of Bible translation. God may not be calling you in that to give skills and so on, but he may be calling you to give financially in order to enable those who have devoted themselves and into this to be able to be effective. That's another way you can be part of this. And if you go to the SIL website, there are ways for you to be able to support what SIL is doing. And just maintaining also the contacts in order to receive Regular information on what is happening in the field of Bible translation is the one of the ways that you can be part of this ministry fully. Well, Michelle, as we get towards the end of the episode here, I wanted to leave some time for our manager's minute. Every 
episode, we like to leave our listeners with one practical action they can take to step into their role as stewards and manage God's wealth wisely. Do you have any suggestions for our listeners today? Yes, I, I want to challenge everyone listening to this uh, podcast today that there is something that each of you can do in order to contribute to the ministry that God has given SIL around the world. You can pray, you can give financially, you can also do something similar to what Killian and Cody are doing here. Uh, as They just avail themselves to be able to do this podcast, to, to spread, to, to amplify the message of SIL and other Bible agencies. God has something for you to do in this, this ministry. And as you go to the SIL website, you may look at the page where there are opportunities for you to support some specific work that is happening around the world. There are ways in which each of you can be part of this ministry. So thank you very much. Yeah, thank you so much for taking some time to be with us, Michelle. I've really, really enjoyed learning more about you, learning more about the work that you're doing through SIL. Uh, Our prayers are with you. Uh, We're excited uh, to call you a friend and to walk alongside you in this journey towards Bible translation. It's, I think, one of the most exciting times to be alive as a Christian, and we're just really excited to to co-labor in that with you. So thank you for being here with us. Yeah, thank you very much, Cody. Thank you, Killian. I, as I told you, meeting you at Illuminations event last year was one of the highlights to say, hey, God has ways to call his own people to participate in something. And I want to say that I believe that what you're doing by amplifying the voice of people like us is just as important as the work of translating the verses in the Pacific or in Africa or wherever. And I just want to say thank you, thank you very much. Hey, thanks so much for listening to the show, guys. Before we finish up, I have a quick question for you. Have you ever stopped to answer the question, how much is enough? Financial Finish Line is designed to help you do just that. Our 90-day Finish Line pledge breaks down the process into three easy steps. Step one, define how much is enough for your family to spend in a single month and use that as your monthly spending budget for 90 days. Step two, as God provides money to manage, set aside any margin outside of your finish line into a separate bank account. Step three, after 90 days, explore the countless ways you can use that margin you set aside to create joy, purpose, and impact in God's kingdom. Want to learn more? Check out our website at finishlinepledge.com. And finally, we would love to hear from you. You can reach us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram at Finishline Pledge, through our website at finishlinepledge.com, or by email at hello at finishlinepledge.com. That's it for today. We'll see you next time.